Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley, Colin McDonald with you. 1380 KLIZ, the fan. Find us on Facebook at Lakes, Woods, and Irons and also on Podcast One, your home for Minnesota podcasts, including Lakes, Woods, and Irons. Chris, uh, as uh, as an uh, article I read said, one for the ages, uh, Phil Mickelson wins the PGA on Sunday and uh, really led it the whole way. It was kind of interesting. He uh, was... Uh, Right at the top of his game, no question. Well, it was yeah, it was it was amazing. I mean, there was nothing that indicated going into this tournament that uh, that, that Phil Nicholson would be on top of the leaderboard. I mean, it uh, my my son, one of my sons, texted me early on Thursday morning, and they said, "Have you seen the leaderboard yet?" And I I said, "No." They said, "Well, you wouldn't you won't believe who's leading." And I, I made about five guesses before uh, before I, I said Phil Mickelson. And, uh, boy, he just he just played fantastic the whole way through. Yeah, leading after Friday, leading after Saturday, he kept breaking records. The yeah. oldest guy to be leading in the in the uh, after two, the oldest guy to be leading after three. Then that uh, roller coaster ride on Sunday was really something. With I think was there five holes with a two shot swing. Uh, that might, I think that's right, and that that was uh, amazing, actually. It really was. It, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't get to turn on the TV until uh, about the start of the back nine, and then I then I was able to watch really the whole back nine. But I was listening to it on uh, the XM radio broadcast, and um, it was just amazing. That the, I mean, every every hole, it seemed like there was. Uh, you know, a change of leadership, and and uh, uh, but the the swings were were dramatic. Yeah, that first hole was Phil bogeyed, and you know, I guess a lot of us who live and die by Phil, myself included, in that group. And then uh, Brooks birdied, and all of a sudden he's up one. And the second hole, Brooks maybe hit one of the worst shots of his career, a little chip shot from the edge that went maybe five feet. He makes double bogey and Phil birdies, so that's a three-shot swing the other way, and all of a sudden Phil's yeah. back ahead by two. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, after that first hole, it was kind of my thought was, oh man, here goes another, another, you know, Phil collapse, and uh, but it sure sure didn't turn out that way. Yeah, kind of the iconic uh, picture that we'll see for a lot of years the the chip in from the bunker on on five. I felt like that's when uh, that it was going to be tough for Kepka to win that day. Um, when Phil gets going like that, even though he's 50 years old, yeah, uh, he, uh, well, he extended out to five shot lead. Which you're thinking, how how did he do that right. against this field? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, know he absolutely. won by two, but he had it to five, which is, uh, you know, in golf, that's uh, psychologically the other guys are thinking, I can't catch him. No, that's right. That yeah, that that was a huge momentum shift when he when he did that, and I think uh, uh, I, I think maybe that took a little bit of, of the wind out of Kepka's sails. But uh, yeah, it was uh, uh, what a what a tournament with his brother on the bag, uh, kind of keeping him calm. They they was a they uh, showed a little something on the Golf Channel about the relationship between the two. Tim's a little brother, so they've never really had rivalry because uh, Phil's seven years older than he is. So uh, they just kind of uh, looked out for each other in their careers and uh, have enough of a good relationship where Phil can take some advice from little brother and that kind of thing. But uh, when Phil is pressed by the best in the world, I was just thinking back on some of his, like when he won the Masters for the first time, 
He had to birdie five of the last seven to overtake Ernie Els at the time, probably the second best player in the in the world by one. And then when he won the British, which I think maybe was Phil at his best, Westwood, Adam Scott, and Tiger Woods were all ahead of him by three or four when the day started. And yeah. uh, he overtook three of the best players in the world that day, along with Hunter Mahan, who was at, at his peak right then, too. So sometimes when he when he gets the, the look in his eye, the eye of the tiger, I guess, uh, which, uh, not Tiger Woods, but the eye of Phil, I guess, once in a while. That's right. Well, I, you know, I think when, when you can, that, that's, that's the thing that separates major champions. Once you've won one, you have that in the memory bank. And he, even though he's, he's blowing some leads and, and not won some terms, when we think about those, we think about the U.S. Open, uh, you know, at Wingfoot and the, the one at Marion where he, you know, he, he probably he should have won both of those. You know, when you, when you have those major wins in your memory bank uh, and that to draw on, uh, boy, it's, it's such a difference between somebody who ha- hasn't ever won one. Uh, and I, I, that, that, that was what was surprising about Kepka's play to a certain extent because he, you know, he, he, he elevates his game for, game for the majors yeah. just about better than anybody. They get to 16, and it, uh, uh, Kepka hits one 361 yards with the win, and Phil, with uh, what, three shot lead maybe at the time or two. It's his drive, 366 yards, the longest drive of the day <laughs> at 50 years old. It was yeah. it was uncanny. <laughs> it was yeah, so incredibly, fun to see. Yeah. Incredibly impressive. Yeah, yeah. Swing speed, he found it a couple of years ago. And, uh, of course, uh, after he was he was quite uh, quite open about uh, doesn't get to eat what he wants to eat and uh, uh, fast 36 hours a week. To handle his not only his uh, psoriatic arthritis but also his diet, he looked fantastic. Actually, he was standing there at the end with his hands on his hips. He looks as good as he's ever looked physically, probably. Yeah, no question. I mean, he he has uh, he continue, You know, he's so passionate about the game and he loves to play and practice. And uh, you know, on, when he's not playing a tournament, he's working on his game hard. And he, he has done an incredible job of maintaining his body and, and you know and enhancing what he does. And um, one of the few guys that has you know gone after speed and and has been able to accomplish it while maintaining his game. So uh, awfully impressive. Jack is the all-time leader in seconds and in firsts. He has 19 seconds along with his 18 majors. I think Phil is is next on the second list and Ustazen's moving up he uh, finished second is it the fifth time he's finished second in a major yeah he's got a lot of game that's too. right uh, he, he's got a lot of game and um, you know when, when you look at that the, the leaderboard gosh, Ustazen finishing second you've got Shane Lowry who hasn't done much since his Open Championship win two years ago yeah and then you've, you've got uh, Padraig Harrington, who hadn't made the cut in a major since 2018. Um, you know, those guys kind of backdoor finished fourth, but uh, incredible play from them. And uh, That was fun to see. I think they played together, didn't they? They did. Yeah. They did. So Probably two Irish quite relaxing that last day. Yeah, they're good buddies, I think. Yeah, they're, they're good friends, so. Got a good guest, Chris, uh, Serge Hogue. Tell us a little bit about his background. He's coming up. 
Yeah, Serge is a uh, uh, professional caddy. He caddies at Seminole Golf Club in the winter and Pine Valley in the summer. And just recently, uh, you know, was a caddy at the Walker Cup. He's going to talk a little bit about his experiences there. And Serge has some great. Uh, uh, he, he's he's just he's so passionate about the game and has uh, some great ideas on course management and how people can improve their games on the golf course. Uh, one to, to get him on to, to talk about that and then, then his Walker Cup experiences. Sounds good. That's coming up. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons on 1380 KLIZ. Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley, Colin McDonald with you. 1380 KLIZ, the fan. Find us on Facebook at uh, Lakes, Woods, and Irons, and also on Podcast One, your home for Minnesota podcasts. Podcast One under Lakes, Woods, and Irons, brought to you in part by Craigans. Be sure to check out the great golf at the Legacy and the great Twilight Golf and Dinner Specials at Craigans on Gull Lake. Among Chris's recent travels, he traveled to Seminole Golf Club in Florida to take in the Walker Cup and uh, had the opportunity to meet uh, Serge Hogue there, professional caddy at Pine Valley and Seminole. Here is Chris's conversation with Serge Hogue. Want to welcome to the show Serge Hogue. Serge is the is a caddy at Seminole Golf Club in the winter and Pine Valley Golf Club in the winter, and uh, recently just caddied in the Walker Cup. Serge, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Good to be here with you. You know, I, I, I had the pleasure of meeting you at the Walker Cup, and have kind of followed you because of. Uh, You've been on a great podcast called the Back of the Range podcast, but my son Michael knows you well, and always a great story about Surge. So uh, it's fun to have you on, Surge. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk some golf with you and just kind of, you know, bat it back and forth a little bit. Yeah, you know, you're you're at two of the the great great golf clubs in the world, Serge. And give us give us a little bit about your background and how you uh, how you how you came to caddying at those two great spots. Well, um, I'm a Muni kid from Baltimore County, and um, I grew up at a place called Mount Pleasant Golf Course and Pine Ridge Golf Course and Clifton Golf Course and, you know, a bunch of places around the Baltimore area. And um, as a kid, I played a lot of junior golf and played golf in high school and college. And um, I went to work at a place called Caves Valley in 1996 as a caddy there when I was 21. And I met a guy named Todd Barron, who was a caddy with me also there. We became good friends. And um, stayed in touch. He became a caddy at Seminole in 1999 or 2000 and worked there for a good 10 years. Uh, the last five were one of the assistant caddy master's positions. So um, I've been chasing him around pretty much for the last 10 years. That's great. <laughs> um, he was nice enough to recommend I you know, get, a, get a spot in the caddy yard at Seminole about 11 years ago. And uh, he became the caddy master at Pine Valley about eight years ago. So... Um, <clears throat> When you when you find good people, you try to you know stay close to them. No, so. no question. You know, and and you know it. I always tell people that it, it, you know playing golf with a caddy is is such a great experience. But it uh, the caddy can either greatly enhance the round or it can be detrimental to the round, depending on who you have in the ba- on the bag. And sure, you know it's it. You're you're at two at two places that have the greatest caddies in the world. I think. And um, what what makes a caddy at those two places so special? Um, their their love of the game first, and that that has to be pretty much. I mean, you can see within a couple of holes whether or not somebody is into that day or the game and what they know about it. You know, you know, relatively soon. But um, we have two yards of just total golf nerds, and besides love of the game, you have to have the knowledge of the game. 
but also you have to have the knowledge of your player and you know you have to if you just met somebody you got to you know spend some time to feel them out and uh, not try to get too you know too overbearing too too soon because they may they may find that a little offensive <laughs> you know um, there's a friend of mine named John Stone years ago gave me kind of a a, uh, a way to chop up a loop in three pieces basically and, and he had fiery red hair and you know he read a bunch of newspapers and, you know he could speak on any level possible so he would say to me, look, three parts of it. You take the first six holes and you keep your mouth shut. You watch what's going on in the entire group, what they're talking about. And sometimes the member might be the, like, the member might bring his boss sure. to play golf today. But, so, you know, your, your idea is to take care of the member. The member's like, hey, you got to take care of this guy today. So, you know, it's the idea of keeping your eyes open and your mouth shut for a good, you know, first six holes. And... Playing on humanity, the next six holes, you know, they'll start to ask you about yourself, you know, where are you from, what do you do? So you get kind of close to them in the next six, but you don't go too far. You never do. But the last six holes, you know everything that they're about. They know a little bit what you're about. And then you know where to steer the conversation as far as keeping your mouth shut the rest of the day. You know, speaking on, you know, it's just your, your adaptability has to be high to be able to work at places like that for a long time because you're going to get a multiple array of people. Absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're, going, to, you're going to come across a lot of people from all walks of life, and uh, what, a, what a great way to spend a, spend a day with somebody, you know? <laughs> yeah, to meet somebody new every day is actually you know, pretty exciting. No, it's very cool. You, uh, <laughs> you, know, you, ju- you just got done caddying in the Walker Cup, and uh, to me, the Walker Cup is the, it, it's, it's my favorite event in golf other than the, other than the uh, Masters. <laughs> And it's to be able to go and, and watch at the Walker Cup is such a unique experience because um, the the people there are so knowledgeable on the game of golf and it's a who's who in the game and um, and just, just the experience of getting to walk down the middle of the fairway with the players as they're playing. And t- t- tell us about your experience in that. Um, I've never had an experience like that before. First of all, um, to watch the the excitement of John Murphy and his partner Mark Power when he made a 15-footer downhill on number six in the first match, first morning match, uh, I guess it was against Quade Cummins and Austin Eckerud. They were already three down through five, and John Murphy made a putt, left edge. I was scared to death of the guy because it, if they missed, they go four down through six. That's really tough to get back from, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> he made it, and if there was ever momentum being three down, that was it, you know. But the the excitement was just nonstop, you know. Um, I've been in situations where my player had a big moment, and they were trying to, you know, do great things. And sometimes they came up short, sometimes they didn't. But when those boys won as partners, their their uh, their alternate shot matches both Saturday and Sunday morning, um, I left that green just as happy as I've been walking off any green playing or not. That had to be such a cool experience. Yeah, it was, it was, um, and the thing was, (laughs) I'm an American, obviously, you know, I'm patriotic and everything, but I was, I was assigned to the GBI team. And once you tell me that I'm fighting for somebody that I'm going to go, you know, so um, it was, it was absolutely joy. No doubt about that. 
And, you know, the, you've, you've got a great caddy at, at Seminole, obviously. The, the guys are all so, such great caddies. How did, how did they decide who was going to be the caddy or who was going to caddy in the Walker Cup? Um, I would say, well, Rick and the, uh, the assistant, Rick Carlson and the assistant caddy master, Taylor Smith, they both, I would imagine, along with the help of, you know, um, Captain Crosby, um, all sat down and looked at what, you know, what top 24 guys they wanted. Um, I'm sure the last, the last 10 were hard to pick because we go, there's a 55, 60 man yard, you know, 60 man, uh, I guess size yard. And we go very deep as far as quality guys. You, you could take our, our worst 24 and they'd still have a great event. Sure. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, um, that's how strong our kids are, you know? Absolutely. That's, that's neat. You know, I, following the Walker Cup, you last week you were on a, a great uh, podcast called The Back of the Range that's all about amateur golf and talking about the, the Walker Cup. And you, you made some some great comments on kind of course management and helping helping your player and uh, that I really thought you know, it could help the average player. And I know you, you taught, taught professionally for a little while, and, but you, and you made the comment that you, uh, you would much rather teach on the golf course than on, on the driving range. And uh, all of us, you know, as somebody who te- teaches golf, you know, 50 to 60 hours a week, I've often thought the, thought the same thing, you know, and it's hard to, it's hard to get somebody out on the golf course to be able to teach them. But t- t- give me some of your thoughts on that. Well, the the art of teaching someone how to swing a club is a gift. No, there's no doubt about that. You know, so the chance to be able to educate a player on what to do when they're on the course, I think, is much less stressed in the the general instruction world. And you know what? I should probably listen. I. I'm probably terrible to say that because I am a layperson. Because I'm not, you know, I don't have my PGA certification. I'm an amateur, but I see that that um, the the amount of hours that friends of mine teach that are really good, they're on the lesson to you for a long time, and they're in demand, and people want to learn how to swing from them. So yes, you're right. It is very tough to get on the course to do it. But when you're on the course with someone, they can have a perfect golf swing and not know that if they're straight downwind, they've got to hit the small club really hard so the ball has enough spin to be able to stop. Yeah. Okay, so that perfect golf swing just got them 25 yards over the green, and they're wondering what went wrong. So that's that's like that little – okay, you, you've seen the, oh, the Flintstones, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've, did I just date myself there? Um so, do you remember Kazoo that sat on your shoulder, right? Oh, yeah. But Kazoo looked like one of the characters from the Jetsons. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a really you know, strange you know, dichotomy there. So, if you think about it, there's no Kazoo sitting on someone's shoulder when they're playing golf unless they have a caddy. That's right. So, besides, you know, little things like you get somebody that has a 50-yard bunker shot, they're They've never even thought of or heard of taking a pitching wedge and laying it open and giving it a good swipe and flying at 45 yards. Okay, people don't know that, and that's what upsets me about the the instruction world. That if these people are out there, you know, getting lessons, then these are the types of things that they should know right away when they get you know get going. But if you don't spend time on the course, you can't do that. 
No, that's exactly so, right. No, it's just it's frustrating for me because I'm I'm not there to give lessons when I'm caddying. That's not what we do. Our job is to give them good information, be sure they're not hoarding anybody up, and you know have you know let them have a pleasant day. Um, we're not there to teach, so. I'm somewhat stuck in a bottle, but I do love what I do. There's no doubt about that. No, I know you do a great job. I, you know, what what are what are some of the what are some of the biggest mistakes you see uh, players make on the golf course? So, you know, you, you get to carry for a wide variety of people from you know everything from play, players playing in the Crump Cup, which is one of the great amateur events, and the in the Coleman Cup uh, to just, you know, the, the average 18 to 20 handicapper. What are some of the differences you see and what are the, some of the biggest mistakes you see? Greed. <laughs> Ch- chase, chasing, greed. That, chasing that pin that they shouldn't. Yeah, total, total greed. Um, and what I'm talking about is if you took the flag out of all of the all the greens and you made someone who has say a, a an 18 handicap because they're a little greedy right all they know is to hit the ball the center of the green they might if you did that for five rounds in a row their handicap would probably go down because the space that they have to, to fail becomes larger when they hit the center of the green yes so let's start there <laughs> um but that's just the flag always gives us that that hope. Oh my God! What if I knock it in the hole? Holy moly! You know, nobody has. Hey, let's be sure we keep it over here. This is going to be our miss. You know, or if it's really windy out, don't um, don't miss on the short side, and you'll be fine. Yeah. You know. Yeah. A, so, a golf course like Seminole that couldn't be more evident because of the greens are so God. so incredibly difficult and so much slope to them and uh there are certain places where you absolutely can't miss it there no i mean we we have a stat there called greens visited in regulation <laughs> i like that <laughs> i got i got me 11 touches today um so yeah it's uh it's the kind of place where if you if you want to ride the wind you really have to um land it on the corners of the greens so you're better off trying to fight it and slow the ball down a little bit. Sure. Um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Giles, Vinny Giles plays a little bit of a draw, so he's been hitting the 17th green quite a bit for you know for how many decades he's been there. But uh, that's uh, that's one of the few people that that, you know, that have the shot for that hole. Yeah. Like I heard it. I think Captain Crosby said he had eight players of the ten that played a cut. And, um, you know, getting to the 17th hole with that kind of a ball flight, you really had to aim on that left side pretty heavily. Yeah, that, the, it, for people who aren't familiar with the golf course, the 17th and 18th hole run parallel to the to the ocean, and the wind is coming off that ocean. So, um, you know, if, if you're playing a cut shot, you're, that ball is going to travel. you, you got to aim it out in the ocean to, uh, to get it anywhere near the green. Exactly. Oh. And the... Uh, Basically, the there. I mean, when I had John Murphy on seventeen, um, first of all, I was scared to death. <laughs> if I if I was swinging a club, I might not have hit the ball. Who knows? <laughs> You're listening to Chris Foley's conversation with Serge Hogue, professional caddy from Pine Valley and Seminole Golf Club. 
We'll be back with more of that interview after this. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons. Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley, Colin McDonald with you, 1380 KLIZ, The Fan. We're on Facebook at Lakes, Woods, and Irons and Podcast One at Lakes, Woods, and Irons as well. Thanks in part to Emily Green's golf course in Emily, home of the largest green in the universe. Put Emily Green's on your calendar this summer. We return now to our conversation with uh, Serge Hogue and uh, Chris Foley as they talk strategy and teaching in the world of golf. Serge, how many how many players that you caddy for are actually know the true yardages they hit their golf clubs? <laughs> it's so funny you ask that. The lady that I had today um, was not a liar, um, and it, it was great to see. She she told me how far she hit her clubs, and that's exactly how far she hit them. <laughs> I, I was I was so happy to get somebody that just knew how you know knew how it was and, and wasn't trying to be macho and like oh I hit my seven iron you know a buck seventy, and you know it, it just doesn't go that far. Yeah. And I'm I'm not going to tell them that. I'm just going to you know give them a couple extra numbers here and there and just try to go from there. But um, there's there's few people that really know how far they hit their clubs. Yeah, I mean that the thing that I see, I mean the probably the worst mistake that I see among the players that I teach and help is they don't have a realistic idea of how far they hit their hit their clubs. Everybody bases their distances on their best shot ever with that club. Yeah, the most flush hit. Oh, that's yeah. how far I hit my 8 iron, a buck 62. And okay, great. And if they if they just knew what their averages were and maybe their their short and their long average, they they would hit way more greens. And if they hit way you know if they could just hit two three four more greens around, that's worth you know six to ten shots around. And so without doing anything without doing anything differently, without practicing more, they automatically are, are shooting, you know, five to ten shots better than they typically do. Yes, and you but now you're talking about trying to get someone to 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 actively mentally care more about their decision making than they normally do. Yes. Okay, so let me ask you a question. How long have you been teaching for? Gosh, 32 years, I think. 32 years. Yeah. Um, when I got through with a round of golf, and I was at a place called Pine Ridge where they had a range, and my mom would come get me, you know, when they, when they turned the lights off, finally. Um, when I got through playing golf, I would hit the shot on the range that bothered me the most that day and try to get some solace with it because the next time I saw it, I wanted to know that it wasn't going to beat me again. Yeah. And and that type of a, I guess, of a natural process that I put myself through was fun, first of all. But when I taught, that was one of the questions that I asked all my students before we even started. What do you do physically, physically, when you leave the 18th green? Nobody ever said, I go to the range and work on the shot that pissed me off the most. And you know what? That pissed me off. (laughs) (laughs) If if you watch good players uh, or you know tour players, that's when they practice is after they play, not not before they play. Going to the range before you play is is loosening up. It's not practice. Yes. And uh, if you truly want to get better, you'd focus on what your errors were that day. And uh, work on that, and then go home and uh, and sleep on it. Yep, that's it, man. 
I, uh, I got hooked on the game probably when I was about hooked, hooked when I was about 12. I started playing tournaments when I was about nine. And my, my travel baseball coach found out that I was playing golf on Saturday mornings instead of going to baseball games. <laughs> <laughs> and he kicked me off the team when I saw him at the in-house all-star game. He goes, you're off the team. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm okay with the thing. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, um, the tournament thing really got me because I, um, I got beat by a lot of people and it really bothered me. And I just, I, I would, I couldn't wait to get to another one and work on it for like the next three weeks and just show up and like, all right, I'm here again. You know, let's go. Oh, that's uh, great. So, Serge, if you, if you had a, a young, talented player, what, what would you, what are your suggestions for them to, what, what would you have them work on? management wise game wise not not swing wise there's so many kids who can swing it so well and they practice you know on the range they look like they're tour players but when they when they get on the golf course they're about 85 shooters what the, <laughs> what, what what's your advice to those type of players my advice is to spend at least as much time as they can hitting shots inside of 100 yards. Um, 80-yard wedges and in. Between 80 and 40 yards, keeping your feet as close together as you can. John Murphy had the, had the most narrow stance besides Graham McDowell that I've ever seen, and I loved it because he had to be rotational. You can't get lateral movement if you're, you know, if you're narrow. But the thing is, is so many people um, – have a far too wide of a stance in general for a lot of their shots. Sure. Um, do you do you instruct this or like you know do you speak about this to your students as far as the width of their stance relative to the size of their arm motion? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, the shorter the club you have in your hands, the less lateral motion you, you need or want, the more rotational. So uh, that stance width has a big influence on that. Um, what's your what's your thoughts on width of your stance visually having a direct effect on the size of your arm motion? Mm. That's interesting. I suppose the the wider your stance, probably the the less motion you're gonna uh, arm motion you're gonna have. I would say. I would totally yeah. disagree. I think it's the opposite. Yeah. So imagine this, okay? You have a driver in your hand and your feet are, you know, maybe a click or two wider than your shoulders, okay? Sure, yeah. And the ball is, you know, it's in the front left part or whatever. And you're going to be able to make as large a motion as you want because, you know, your hips are inside of your feet and you can really rev it up, right? Oh, sure, yeah. But, but if you do the, if you see your feet that wide enough, you're used to your arms getting that big of a move. Mm-hmm. So... What if your feet were, you know, inside of your shoulders, maybe about two inches? I mean, I'm standing up right now. My feet are about two, three inches apart at the most, okay? Mm -hmm. It is not physically natural to make the size arm motion that you made with the driver when your feet are this narrow. Would you agree? Sure, yeah. Okay, so you are, you're basically going to, when when you have a visually more narrow feet, you're automatically going to have a shorter arm motion because the controllability is what you're going to stay within relative to the width of your feet. Mm-hmm. So my gig is, why not make your feet really narrow 
and then have a contest with yourself. How short can I make my backswing and always have the same rate of acceleration? Therefore, there's no interruption down the bottom because when you had your feet too wide, you always get your hands maybe, you know, shoulder height, ear height sometimes, and then you're like, oh man, maybe I got to slow my hands down and get the proper speed. Nobody's that good. We both know that. No, that's, that's good. I, I like that shirt. That's, uh, I like so, your thinking there. So the thing is, imagine a, okay, Bruce Lee could knock somebody down with his fist from one inch, from one inch away. You ever heard about that? No. Okay. A very short space between him and someone's chest, he could knock them down, right? Yeah. So he gets to have all the speed he wants going through that wall, okay? That's exactly what we want when we hit a golf shot, yes? Right, right. We don't want anything slowing down, so we want to have as much desire to attack through that ball so there's no interruption whatsoever. So make your feet narrow, come back as short as, as, you know, regular necessary, and then see what happens when you, when you flick out a 56 degree wedge and it goes, you know, 70 yards and your hands got waist high, but it comes out like a low, like a low dart. Yeah. I'm going to hit some balls when we hang up, Serge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's the gig. Okay. Here's the fun part about it. If you start to, my dad bought me Hogan Apex blades when I was 12 said to me, you're going to be a ball striker. I'm like, well, I hope so, because I'm playing against a kid with, you know, brilliant copper ping eye twos and graphite shafts tomorrow. That's worth at least four shots. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is I had to chip the ball around the golf course my whole life, because if I hit it thin, it hurt like shit. Yeah. And basically... All my irons, I was a club or two, sometimes shorter than all my friends, and I went at my driver like an absolute madman. <laughs> so, so these little chip cuts, you know, like right now, I'm more comfortable hitting a little chip cut seven iron at buck fifty than actually working to, you know, hit an eight iron, you know, whatever. Sure. It's just, I um, I learned how to play that way, and I think that more young kids need to adopt some knowledge of that type of way of playing golf because when they get to the wind it's going to be absolutely necessary to keep the ball out of the wind hit the ball at a lower rate of speed but you can only do it if you come in from a shorter shorter place from the top of your backswing you know that that point i I think that's why the walker cup matches were much closer than on paper they should have been was Was the yeah. G- GB&I players are m- were much more adapt at playing in that wind um, than the U.S. players were because that that's the style of golf that they they've grown up playing and they know how to hit those poor partial shots much better than uh, than the kids from who grew up in the U.S. There's no doubt about that. I was so lucky, John Murphy, as far as my player, because we both played golf the same way of sorts. Um, I mean, if he had a, a five iron in his hand, well, just, you know, the, the scenario that happened on 17, we had 187 and it was a really steady wind at us. And the way that I kind of started working on some things a bunch of years ago is if you can only now, let me know if you think I'm nuts. I mean, you probably already do it, you know, like <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> but um, here's the gig. If, if the wind is directly into you, it's just only really a fact, right? Yeah. If you can only feel, if you can only feel the breeze, 
it's only worth five to ten yards more. Okay. Okay. Flat to flat. But if you can hear the breeze, it's worth 20 yards. Now, you may want to take that for a grain of salt because I have big ears and, and, you know, I hear a little quicker than everybody else. But um, I haven't been burned on that. I've been using it for a while. So we were on 17 and um, he was two down with two to play. Yeah. And he had the he had the box. He wanted to come back and get the six iron, and I was doing everything I could to let him know that he had the right club in his hand, besides, you know, wrestling him away from the six iron. Nice, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it worked out well, but the thing about it is he had hit that same five iron a whole bunch during the weekend already. Yeah. So that's what I was trying to get him into the physical memory of it and just get rid of the idea that he basically had to hit a six iron 207 yards into the breeze. Nobody with a sound mind is going to try and do that. Right, right. Unless, unless you're bracing the end Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, you know, he has a sound mind, but, um, you know, the, uh, the idea of him not, you know, him not working that hard is what I was looking for, trying to keep that ball low enough to where it didn't get beaten on. Sure. Oh gosh. Well, Serge, that is that is great stuff. That's great. Well, Serge, I really really appreciate you coming on the show and and give us some some of your thoughts on uh, course management and teaching and uh, always good catching up with you. Chris, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on with you, man. And um, I uh, hope you hope you have a good rest of the season coming up. And uh, be good, man. You as well, Serge. That's Chris's conversation with Serge Hogue, professional caddy at Pine Valley and Seminole Golf Club, two of the finest golf courses in the world. You're listening to Lakes, Woods, and Irons on 1380 KLIZ. Welcome back to Lakes, Woods, and Irons with Chris Foley, Colin McDonald with you, 1380 KLIZ, the fan. And on uh, Facebook at Lakes, Woods, and Irons, find us there. Leave a comment if you'd like. Leave a question if you'd like. Also, you get a little drop down for some golf swag, which you should have put together in the next week or two, and uh, start to give some of that golf swag away. And also on Podcast One, you can find us there anytime you go looking for Lakes, Woods, and Irons when you're listening to your favorite podcasts. Masters, of course, uh, Phil Mickelson, the winner. We do want to thank uh, Serge Hogue, our guest. Uh, good segment and uh, fun to hear the insights there from a caddy at the Walker Cup and just a professional caddy in general. Uh, Chris, they talked a little bit about uh, Phil at the uh, PGA with just some slight tweaks, and uh, those guys are such good analysts. I love to listen to uh, Brandel Chambly and and the, and the like uh, as they start to analyze uh, Phil's. For for instance, the putting style just he bowed his legs slightly, and uh, uh, they were making a big deal out of it. I don't know. You you've uh, taught enough people. You've probably seen. Uh, the psychological effects of a minor change. Maybe it's just the sight line, but uh, we've talked, we've joked about Phil before, you and I, that uh, he finds it, then he loses it, then he finds it again because he's always searching. <laughs> yeah, I th- you know, I think that's all of us to a certain extent, Mac, is that, uh, you know, we all have peaks and valleys in the game, and if you're working on your game, sometimes it's just one, one shot that, that restores your confidence or or it gives you a feel that uh, that you have it, and I think uh, you know when when it came to Phil's putting, that was the case. He, he throughout his career, he he's been a a fantastic putter, but he's also a very uh, streaky putter. 
and um, you know he put a putter in the bag that he hadn't putted with in, in quite some time. And uh, you know, so he, a, a couple instances on short putts on Sunday, he uh, he went to the claw and he'd been been putting conventional all week. So <laughs> he he just. Uh, adapted and um, I, I, I wish I could I, I had a better answer why uh, why it, at some point you go man I got it and, and you hadn't had it for a long time so <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd, I'd, I'd make a lot of money teaching this game right you would yeah that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they said that putter the uh, sweet spot is a uh, a little smaller than the size of a dime and uh, they said it's completely different than almost all the putters on tour right now yeah, you know that that putter is a putter that originally uh, it was from the 1950s. It was called a George Lowe Wizard, and um, Arnold Palmer started putting with with that putter. And at that point, Arnold Palmer was uh, on staff with Wilson, and they made uh, um, they made a what was called an Arnold Palmer 8802, and with that shape, and you know the. Arnold Palmer, Palmer putted with that off and on for years. He he was very similar to Phil. He was a you know such a tinkerer with his equipment and always trying something different. But uh, you know that, that's that's the putter that, that that Ben Crenshaw used throughout his career. But you know so some some of the the game's great putters, but not necessarily one of the the great putters of all time. And in, in that it's a you know you, you have to be you have to have a uh, you know kind of a a swinging putting stroke like Ben Crenshaw or Mickelson has, and okay, yeah, uh, it, it's hard. It's hard to hit this. There's that putter does not have a lot of forgiveness to it, uh, like uh, you know most of the, the mallets and high MOI type putters that we're seeing today. Yeah, yeah, it was nice to see Chris uh, with COVID and everything, but kind of that uh, that great vibe of the crowd there, even though it got a little raucous at the end. Um, uh, they're saying dangerous. I don't know. Maybe it was a little bit, but it was. It was kind of nice to have the big event vibe. It wasn't as big a crowd as it even looked like on TV. I think, um, but it was a nice, uh, big enough crowd where you really got the feeling for uh, uh, fun and uh, a major vibe. I guess. Yeah, it was great to see uh, see you know see crowds at a sporting event. <laughs> we haven't seen much of that, but uh, yeah, it uh, it was cool to see how they let the fans go but they, they they i think they lost a little control of security and they weren't quite prepared for uh for letting those those crowds swing out and the security around the players but thankfully everything turned out okay <laughs> no no harm no foul i guess <laughs> yeah one article i was reading that said the crowd was uh, big or is it big and beery yeah that's a good way to put it yeah big and beery yeah yeah uh but yeah coming through i mean you remember tiger coming out of the crowd at the british open and uh arnie two years ago kind of getting pushed around and then fake limping out of the crowd so it's i mean it's happened before where uh kind of that almost mob mentality or just it was so joyous i guess because he'd already hit the ball onto the green at the 72nd hole and at that time, you can't lose. So right, yeah. You know that that the, the, that's a tradition at the British Open is they've always let the crowds, you know, fill the 18th fairway after the players have hit their approach shots, 
and um, but uh, you know they they definitely have the ropes up and the the players are surrounded by security and I uh, I don't think they were quite prepared for that at uh, on Sunday. Now a couple more events and then uh, what is it maybe three weeks to the U.S. Open? Tory Pines, right, Chris? Yeah, Tory Pines and. Uh, uh, it'll be a it'll be a great build up for for the U.S. Open here, but uh, we're into the championship season. Yeah, exactly right. Yep. So U.S. Open next, and uh, more uh, Lakes Woods and Irons next week as well. Thank you, Phil. Uh, thank you, Chris. <laughs> and, thank you, Matt. And thank you, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right, you've been listening to Lakes Woods and Irons on thirteen eighty KLIZ.